The beauty of creation grabs us like a mother grabbing the face of her young son and making him look up at her. It's something so beautiful, so loving, we can't even look away. It's something where we have to come out and feel and experience it and know it. We can read about how beautiful creation is, but the message of creation is more than what we can just comprehend with our minds. It's something we need to experience. It's like shivering when we're cold or laughing when someone tickles us. It's something that just bubbles out of us involuntarily when we experience God and His creation. And the message of creation, and there are many, many messages in creation, even if we can't fully comprehend them with our minds only, we know, we know in our gut that someone not something or some random chance, but someone made all of this. And that the someone who made all of this must be absolutely head over heels in love with us. How else could we explain the delight and fun and joy that we get from being out and experiencing the beauty of creation? It has to be love that's behind it. You know, if we would try to take apart or dissect what is it that makes God's creation beautiful. Oh, we might put things on the list like, look at how grand it is, the grandeur of creation with the mountains and the clouds and the sky. And the other thing in the bucket of what makes creation beautiful might be something like its complexity. Look how different everything is, unique in its own way, and yet connected to the one who designed it and made it. Or how about, how about all those mysterious patterns of behavior, migratory patterns of birds, the often comical mating rituals uh, among the animals. And the beauty of creation can be talked about in those parts. It's grandeur, it's complexity, it's mysterious patterns. But way more than its parts, or even the sum of its parts, there's something more that the beauty of creation simply proclaims. And if we believe, and since we know, that it is our God that is behind all of this beauty of creation, then what is it that he's trying to communicate to us, reveal to us about all of this? Is it only, look at what I have made and see how great I am? To be sure, it does reveal and communicate that about our God. But there has to be more. Doesn't God also say through creation, look, look at what I have made. Look how beautiful. Look how spectacular. Look at what life is all about. And know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I love you. God didn't have to make us. He didn't have to create us at all. But he did. He didn't have to make creation so beautiful and spectacular and sensory, but he did. And he didn't have to take us and put us right smack dab in the middle of all of this beautiful creation, but he did. Why? Doesn't it have to be because God loves us? So when you come outside and you see the beauty of the sky, hear the message of that beautiful vast sky, and the message is God loves us. And when you see a tree, God loves us. 
And when you see that mother taking that face of her son and having him look up to her and smile and encouragement, know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves us.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, if you're able? Otherwise, I invite you to stand in spirit, at least together with us. A Bible expert once asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important? Another Bible expert once asked Jesus even, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And each time, Jesus answered the question by quoting Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema answers the question of who we are and what we're doing here as followers of Jesus and our mighty, loving Creator God. So, let's recite this passage together this morning, shall we? We'll do it in Hebrew too, responsibly. I'll read a line and then you repeat it after me. And then we'll recite it in English all together. I'd like for us, between now and the end of the year, to memorize this passage. Yes, in Hebrew too. If you have your little Shema cards, I brought mine. I'll have the words on the screen. You don't need it this morning. But if you have your little Shema cards, you can work on your memory work assignment during the week, won't you? Uh, Both in English and in Hebrew on one side and the other. If you need a card, please stop by, see Kara at the greeting table in the foyer. She has a few left. If we run out, we'll get some more. So go ahead and pick up your card and work on learning Shema, won't you? You see the words on the screen. Say these words after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloeka. Becholavavka. Uvahol Nafshaka. Uvahol Meodeka. Ve'ahavta Reacha Kamocha. Amen. Together in English. Want to see what you just recited? Together, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Last week, I asked you to consider with me from now through Christmas whether we will embrace Shema, embrace, love God, and love others as the foundational mission of West Bowles Community Church. Keep considering, keep praying about that, will you, as we continue looking at Shema from a variety of angles and asking more questions of this Scripture that Jesus gave such special emphasis. If you missed... Last week's message, or any message for that matter, a reminder, uh, or to those of you visiting who haven't been told this yet, you'll find them recorded online at westbowlschurch.com. Usually John has those posted no later than Wednesday each week, so you can catch up anytime you want. Now, Shema sets itself up nicely 
for a two-part sermon series. The love God part and the love other parts. And so that's why I'm doing it in three parts, of course. <laughs> that's, because, that's because before we get to the love God and love others parts of Shema, we need to hear, we need to know, we need to trust completely in something else first. On the first day of Bible class, a teacher asked a student to begin reading Genesis. And so the student stood up and began to recite, In the beginning, God, and the teacher interrupted her, Stop! He said. Thinking she had made a mistake, the student began again, In the beginning, God, Stop! In the... Beginning God, stop! And now that the teacher had everyone's attention in the classroom that day, he looked into the eyes of his students and he said, If you don't believe that, there's the door. The rest won't make any sense to you at all. Before... We can love God and love others. We need to hear. We need to know. We need to trust completely in one foundational, absolute truth. We need to know that God loves us. Each of us needs to know that God loves me. You need to know that God loves you. Or in the words of the Apostle John, we need to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is love. If we don't, if we don't believe that God loves us, if we waver on that in the least, Shema won't make any sense at all. Now maybe you're someone who doesn't struggle with that. Trusting that God indeed loves you, cherishes you, and if you don't struggle with that, well, I'll tell you, praise God for that gift of faith. Because it is indeed a gift of faith from God if you're always sure God loves you. But you might also be someone, like me, who wrestles a bit with that from time to time, whether God truly loves us. Perhaps things like the pain and suffering involved in life makes you wonder sometimes about whether God loves you. Or maybe, maybe God's wrath or judgment gives you pause sometimes in trusting that God is indeed love. Those two things in particular, the, the reality of pain and judgment and how they relate to God's love are two things we'll look at closely the next few weeks. This morning, I'd like to introduce God's love for us by starting in the beginning. The very beginning. Because it's in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the first story. The story of creation that God gives us in Scripture. Creation is our very first glimpse of God. And what a glimpse it is. In Genesis 1, everything was formless and empty and dark. And then God is there. 
And on day one, God says, let there be light. And there was light which God separated from darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night. On day two, God creates the sky. And on day three, the land and the sea and plants. And then with His magnificent stage set, with the spaces of time and sky and land and sea all prepared in days one through three, God then in days four through six fills the spaces He has made. And so on day four, God fills the day with the sun. Isn't that a spectacular picture? For those of you listening online, I'm so sorry you can't see the pictures this morning. I'm showing pictures of God's amazing creation as we move through the days of creation. You'll just have to imagine or picture creation in your mind. And God fills the night with the moon and the stars. And on day five, God fills the sea with fish and fills the air with birds. And finally, on day six, God fills the land with animals. Aren't they beautiful? And last, God saves His best for last. God completes His creation by making man and woman. And while God is doing all of this creating, He can't help but pause to see it, to notice it, to assess it. He sees that His creation is good. Six times God sees that His creation is good. And then a seventh time when He's finished, God looks at the all of it, takes it all in, and sees that it is in Hebrew all matov. Very good. And creation reveals a lot about God. And one of the things creation reveals about God is that God is love. As you continue to look at these spectacular pictures this morning, and wow, did I have a great time looking through hundreds of pictures of God's creation like these. The sheer beauty of creation, it just makes you go, oh, and gasp, doesn't it? And what does all this good and very good creation tell us about the One who made it all? What does it tell us that God is like? And I'm suggesting to you this morning that there must, there must be love behind such indescribable beauty. These things that God made must be an expression of love. Can you imagine a God of hate or evil creating such awesome, raw, rugged, pure, breathless, gasping beauty? Could anything less than an infinite love create such beauty? God's attention to detail, His 
coordinated symphony of earth, water, air, and fire is surely a labor of love. If anything testifies to our God being a God who is love, it's the beauty of creation. Love lifts every sunrise and it's love that gently sets and lowers every sunset. Love is in the wind and in the rain. Love just pours from all that God created good and very good. Creation indeed reveals that God is love. And you know, He must simply delight in His creation. He must have wept with joy so many times as He made the heavens and the earth. You know, I imagine, I also imagine God laughed out loud over and over again. (laughs) For those listening online, I have on the screen of the most hilarious looking lizard I have ever seen in my life. Look at that guy. Or gal, who can tell, right? I imagine the angels watching God create the universe. They must have been floored. And what do you suppose was their reaction when this lizard first appeared? How could they have kept from laughing? I mean, seriously. I imagine God laughing with delight as He puts the finishing touches on this lizard, making sure the eyes like rivet independently. And taking this lizard, can you just picture him running over to the angel with this lizard in his hands? And he's just beaming, just grinning from ear to ear. And he shows them what he has just made. And he does it over and over again. And he says to him each time, look at this! <laughs> Isn't he great? And the angel's got to be just chuckling. Oh man, are you kidding me? What's next? And I don't know... The biggest wonder of all, perhaps, was reserved for the time God presented the angels, Adam and Eve. Look! Look not just what I made. Look who I made. In my own image. Can you believe these people? God delights in His creation. And God's creation, the beauty of it, the delight in it, reveals that God is indeed love. And then, God takes all He has made and He gives it as a gift to the humanity He loves so they can live in it and take care of it. What a loving gift. You know, that kind of gift that means the most. The gift of something for someone you love made out of your own hands. And He gives it to us. Genesis 1 and 2 are all about God and His love. Love expressed in creation. And love expressed in giving creation to people. Wow. God must really love us to give us, to trust us with such an amazing gift. Creation is one big way, at least, that God says to all of us, to all of humanity, I love you. I give you life, and I give you all this to live in and take care of because I love you that much. Now, someone might say, however, what about Genesis 3? 
Isn't that where God shows up and starts throwing curses around? Cursing Adam and Eve because they disobeyed? That doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk more about God's judgment. For this morning in passing, let me say this, please. Please remember that while God is love, He is also holy, which means He cannot be a party to evil or sin. And so He commands Adam and Eve to love, to obey, because disobedience is sin. See, Because God is so in love with Adam and Eve and every person, He wants to be in close, tight with people, in intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. And for that to happen, they need to be without sin. They need to be obedient because God is holy. And so God's insistence on obedience is born out of His love. He's a stickler for it because that's the only way He can truly be as intimate as He desperately wants to be with us. So love me, please, so I can be with you. And we can plainly see God's love, yes, even in Genesis 3, in the midst of Adam and Eve's disobedience and the consequences of their disobedience. When I ask kids, students, whether... They think God is angry in Genesis 3. They usually tell me, yeah, God is angry with Adam and Eve. Boy, did they get it. But you know what? Nowhere in Genesis 3 does it say God is angry. And the context suggests, in my opinion, that God is not angry with Adam and Eve. Rather, contextually, His great, loving, it's all good, creative heart is broken. He seems devastated over the loss of intimate relationship with the ones He loves so much. If anything in Genesis 3, God seems sad. Because his kids have decided they'd rather do this gardening thing alone and without him. The context of Genesis 3 in the text is God's love on display in creating the heavens and the earth, including His beloved Adam and Eve. And the very next time God appears in the story is when He comes to see and to walk with the ones He created and loves. As you recall, Adam and Eve listened to the snake and disobeyed. And they know what they did was wrong because they try and hide from God. And God calls out for them. And my friends, other than Jesus' cry from the cross when He desperately asks His Father why He has forsaken Him, there may be no more in-agony words in all of Scripture, indeed in all of history, than when God in Genesis 3 calls out, Where are you? I always read those words as God being aloof or angry. Where are you? Or, where are you? The Bible doesn't give us tone too often. But in the context of love being poured out 
in Genesis 1 and 2, I think a far more likely tone than reprimand is God calling out with something similar to the same distraught, desperate, even panicked cry of a mother or father who can't find their little kids in a mall crowded with Christmas shoppers. You ever been there, mom and dad? Your kids have wandered away in a dangerous place and the thought enters your imagination that maybe they were enticed away by some snake. And then that, that dread almost starts to build in your gut. And it's hard to even control your voice, let alone the pounding of your heart because you don't know where they are. Can you feel that? Adam? Eve? Adam? Eve? Where are you? Where are you? Remember, this is the God, the Father, who watches the bend in the road day and night, Jesus tells us, and who runs at first sight of the returning prodigal son. And I think context suggests God either calls out with that loving parental alarm or at least with complete and utter brokenness over the loss of intimate relationship with Adam and Eve and through them, us. Oh, no. Where are you? In the immediate context, suggesting God's love, yes, even in Genesis 3, is not limited to creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Despite what you have been taught, perhaps, or heard, or think you know, please hear me on this. God does not curse Adam or Eve. He curses the snake. And we learn the earth is cursed because of what they've, done, what they've done. But nowhere does it say that God curses Adam or Eve. Nowhere. Instead, out of His deep love, God warns Adam and Eve that given their choice, which He honors, given their choice, God warns Adam and Eve that they will find life relentlessly frustrating on their own in a fallen world. Adam, God says, because you have chosen to do life on your own without me, you will be extremely frustrated in your work. You're going to continually try to do it on your own strength by the sweat of your brow, God says. And son, it's going to be rough. And Eve... Because you've chosen to do life on your own without me. Your mother's heart. Oh, Eve, your mother's heart 
will be broken out of love and concern for raising your kids in this fallen world. And Eve, because you've chosen to do life on your own without me, you're going to find your husband is inclined in this broken world, in his broken state. You're going to find he'll rule over you, Eve, rather than return your desire to partner with him as I made you to be. And daughter, it's going to be rough. Adam, Eve, anyone and everyone, it's going to be impossible out there on your own in a fallen world without me. One take, at least, of Genesis 3 is that God, out of love, warns Adam and Eve and warns us, gives us a loving heads up that life in a fallen world is going to be relentlessly frustrating. And then, right in the middle of the chapter, describing and telling the story of the fall, God can't help but promise Jesus. He lays it out there for the snake, right on the snake's head. He lays it out there for Adam and Eve, with angels listening in. And I picture there too that day, Jesus listening to His Father. One day, God promises His kids whom He loves. A descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head. One day, God promises, Jesus will fix this horrible, frustrating, devastating problem so I can be with you intimately again and this time for keeps forever. Won't you come back to me? I love you. God loves us in the beginning and beyond. Ever notice what God does next after He warns Adam and Eve that life, what life will be like on their own? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, favorite short stories. It's just a one-sentence story. And it's still in Genesis 3, go figure, in context. And it makes me smile every time I read it. Right before the fall, right before the fall, God acts in unabashed love in creating the universe, including Adam and Eve. And right after it all falls apart, right after God comes and warns Adam and Eve that life will now be frustrating given their choice, and the very next story is that God graciously gives them clothes to cover their shame. He provides and cares for His kids because He loves them. This is no act of a hateful, vindictive, angry, judgmental God. God takes one look at their sorry excuse for clothes that Adam and Eve made out of salad. <laughs> they were in a rush. He was coming. What do we got? Okay, fig leaves, but still. I can just see God looking at their fig leaf clothes, right, and just shaking his head, maybe even with a wry smile on his face. Oh, good heavens, that simply won't do here. And he gives them leather clothes. That's got to wear better than those leaves, don't you think? 
Less scratchy, too? I don't know. He graciously provides for them in love so they won't feel so ashamed. What a loving thing for God to do right there when it all falls apart. And God's like that, doing love, especially when it all falls apart. Before we can set out on a path to love God and love others, we need to hear, we need to know, we need to trust completely that God loves us. He has since the beginning. He does even when we struggle, especially when we struggle. God's command to love Him is given in love, out of love. His command to love Him is love because unless we love Him, obey Him, we like Adam and Eve push God away, telling Him we can do this gardening thing on our own too. And we can't. Before we can set out on a path to love God and love others, we need to hear, we need to know, we need to trust completely that God loves us. He has since the beginning. And He still does today. God loves us. God loves you. God, in fact, is love. All creation sings it. So the next time your breath is taken away by the beauty of the universe, the beauty of the earth, the beauty of creation, please be reminded and know and trust that God loves you. God loves us. And what about the pain that nevertheless is present in our lives? It's a great question. A hard question. And it's one we'll take a look at next week. So help us, God. Let's pray. And as you bow your head in prayers, I invite the worship team to come up. They'll lead us in one last song this morning, and then we'll be on our way. Father in heaven, thank you so much that each time the sun rises, we're reminded you love us. That each time our breath is taken away by the beauty, the magnificent, the magnificence, the wonder of your creation, each time that we're reminded how deeply and madly and head over heels in love with us you are. Thank you. Oh, we just praise you for being a God who is love. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.